Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. With the third pick in the 2019 NBA Draft, the New York Knicks select R.J. Barrett. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Strickland, the greatest, most illustrious spinoff pod in the history of Nick's spinoff pods. It's me, your host, Prez, and we are picking up where we left off. I don't even know when we did the last one. A couple of weeks ago? A couple of months ago? What is time? I don't know. We had a couple of awesome pods that were not really draft class review related, Um that I encourage you to check out if you haven't. One with uh, Jacob Toppin, aka the really high jumping wing in Kentucky, who is also the younger brother of one Obi Toppin. And we also had a pod with Coach Mike of GBG Hoops, where I nerded out about biomechanics for an hour. Um, go check those out. But now we are coming back to our draft retrospective series to talk about a very special draft, the 2019 draft known to everybody, obviously, as the R.J. Barrett draft, and to help me uh, relive some of those uh, interesting memories, I have two very special guests today. The first is Chuck of the Chucking Darts pod. You can find him on Twitter at Chucking Darts. Chuck, how are you today? I'm wonderful, man. Very excited uh, to be on here. This will be a great trio. I'm I've, I'm almost embarrassed to say how much I've been looking forward to it all day, but this is going to be great. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, I too have been looking forward to it. And the second guest is none other than Sean Darenthal of the Stepian podcast, thestepian.com. You can find him on Twitter at Ode to Odin. Sean, how you doing? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Before this, I have to admit that I... I was wasting a little bit of time waiting for the pod. I went down a bit of a YouTube rabbit hole and I found myself watching a video about um, somebody vaporizing a hot dog wiener in acid. So like, I'm pretty amped to go. Like I got, I got my juices really flowing. So yeah, let's, let's do this. All right. Yeah. I don't know if uh, we can uh, match that high, but we will try <laughs> our hardest. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good because we're coming off of the, the Knicks weird uh, 2003-esque victory over the Pacers that neither team hit triple digits. And I thought I was feeling good, but this is like a whole nother level here. So now <laughs> now there's, uh, there's actually pressure here. Um, but for listeners who haven't um, checked out the pods that I mentioned that these two gentlemen have and uh, the step in, I mean, if you're listening to this, you're probably familiar with the step in um, influential site to armchair analysts and real analysts, um, probably more than they would give credit for. Um, that's why a bunch of the people who wrote for the step in got hired. Um, so uh, we, we really got some, 
some awesome guests, some minds on the draft today. I mean, not on the draft today, <laughs> on the pod today. And, uh, you know, the 2019 draft was a weird time. I think the most fun thing about these retrospectives for me is like reliving some of the foibles that we weren't really aware about. Just yeah. weird opinion, bad takes. I had many bad takes for this. I feel like this one in particular, there's just like, there's definitely some memory holding from people on draft Twitter, not out of any malicious intent, but just because it's like, all right, you know, sometimes you strike out and let's just move on and and learn our lessons and 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 progress as draft analysts. And, and there's definitely enough of that to go around. Um, and then it was just, a, you know, it, it was a big draft for us as Knicks fans, because obviously, you know, we wanted Zion and we were really, really shitty that year. So everybody wanted the number one pick, but uh, we don't get things like that as Knicks fans. So we settled for the number three pick in what many people had described as a two person draft, which is kind of the chip on your shoulder, you know, bad luck down, but not out mentality that explains to me, at least the insane uh, attachment and love that many of my fellow uh, Knicks fanatics feel for RJ Barrett. But um, just putting the Knicks aside for a second, back in 2019, in the season leading up to to this draft, um, like wh- where were you all at in terms of uh, your draft headspace? Like what what was can y'all remember? Like what was catching your attention as that college season went on, or like anything that stood out? Um, just, you know, in terms of what you were looking for in prospects at the time. Uh, Sean, why don't you go first on this one? <laughs> well, this this was like the one year that I was actually working for a team. So oh, shoot. it's kind of memorable in that regard. Um, I was like doing it full time, right? So, and I saw a lot of kind of the inner workings, of how, you know, what it looks like um, from the front office perspective and, you know, getting a lot of the, the intel flowing in through the year was there a lot of whiteboards <laughs> whiteboards just everywhere man yeah like on rollers on every wall <laughs> yeah just hanging from rafters like yeah just freaking everywhere um but yeah so i it was kind of a obviously a, a unique experience for me but it's i mean you know mostly it's just like the zion year right it was like it was kind of zion just had this unbelievable momentum from almost the very beginning of the year to the end just really unique prospect and i i mean you know deservedly so he he kind of headlines everything and my story is much less exciting but i uh i only really like really really started um doing my draft analysis in the 2020 cycle and so in 2019 it was my sort of dry run where i i tried to develop opinions on maybe you know 30 guys and I tried to do some research, but wasn't the sort of film head that I got to be the following year. And so it was sort of a um, a hybrid between trying to figure out what mattered to me, but also having some of that, uh, and I don't say this disrespectfully to anyone, but having that more like casual brain where you have sort of biases because you've watched basketball a lot, but you haven't tried to really... Uh, do the draft analysis thing. And so it's, I sort of could identify because I had, you know, I had opinions, I had a a board that I kept to myself, but 
I could sort of see where my biases were in hindsight, sort of most clearly for that class, because that's where I was just bringing the most baggage uh, for my pre-analyst life. So it was cool. Casual, the most absolutely devastating insult on MBA Twitter. <laughs> not, not for me, man. Casuals make the world go around. <laughs> if, if any casuals are listening to this, please listen to my pod. I could use more casuals. <laughs> I'm pretty sure all... 11 listeners are casuals so uh <laughs> casuals are welcome in in these parts um let me tell y'all about where i was at this was like really i feel like this was the year that quote unquote draft twitter became kind of like a force on the internet that really influenced basketball conversations among among people who are NBA fanatics on Twitter, which is a very small subset of NBA fans, to be clear. Like, lest we forget those of us who are on Twitter, um, most of the NBA fans are not, don't care anything about, don't even know what draft Twitter is. So um, with that caveat out the way, it was like the Stepien had so many people writing interesting pieces and Every time somebody would drop some new like 10,000 word, 30 minute piece, I'd I'd be fucking ready for my lunch break or even sometimes during the work day to just consume that content <laughs> and just see. Because before that, it was all like, like kind of dipping your toes in the water, like cause especially for Knicks fans, because we really, I think, started getting into it uh, with like the Chris Stapps draft, which was a couple of years before that. And then this was kind of the next big swing it was like the the year we knew we were gonna suck and have a high pick right this wasn't like as much of a clusterfuck as the years before where it's like ah, uh, like we suck but it's not really on purpose and you know are we gonna pick eighth or ninth or tenth and you know kevin knox and let's we say the less we say about that the better and all that so i was like I was really I was really into it. This was probably the year that I became like a slightly obsessive about this stuff. Um more not to say less casual, but a casual who spent more time on this. <laughs> so um you know, Zion was Zion, like you said. We'd all seen the mixtapes, then we saw the games at Duke. It was a weird Duke team with him, uh RJ and Cam and others like Trey. They were really good. This was the first time where I was like, I don't know what Coach K is really doing here. Why don't they yeah. give the ball to this guy? So that was that was kind of another notable thing that happened. But I mean, RJ Barrett still, you know, that, they were winning. So like, what the fuck do I know, right? From my couch, like they were winning. That's all that matters ultimately. So um, the Zion stuff was cool. And then everybody, you know, I remember the high school video of him blocking these like five foot four white kids and stuff like that. It was fantastic content, but. It's really the stuff after that, after him, that got interesting. So I guess the first threshold question um, for y'all is, after Zion, was it, you know, a, a, a lot of people quickly said it was like Zion in his own tier, Morant in his own his own tier. And then a, kind of a mix after that, depending on who you talk to, some people loved Jared Culver and loved Brandon Clark. It's me. I'm some people. I loved both of them dearly, <laughs> but, um, you know, other people kept RJ Barrett up there despite, you know, questions about like efficiency and a little much too much, uh, dip for his chips for an NBA role and stuff like that. Um, so how, how did y'all view that the, 
the little group after Zion? Uh, so I ended up with that next group being basically just uh, John, RJ, and I remember having them more or less in a dead heat. I remember even thinking to myself that I, I probably, for most teams, preferred RJ to Ja. Um, but it was all based on, I mean, this was, again, 2019 was probably like the height of like wing theory, which is still very prevalent, you know, that you just want to get wings because wings are always in demand. But in 2019, they were really, really in demand because not enough teams had really adjusted uh, and subscribed to the philosophy. And so the fact that, uh, you know, RJ didn't have the best freshman season, but it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't a dud. And everything that I heard about him was that, you know, Steve Nash is really close with them, that he was, you know, one of the hardest workers you'd ever meet. I knew that the spacing at Duke was not very good, so it wasn't the ideal environment for him either. And that, you know, he was strong for his age and that he he was more or less a blue chip player. He just didn't have uh, really the shooting profile that you'd want for a number one pick. And so I thought, you know, wings are what tend to rise to the top in the NBA. And even though I love Ja, I just thought that um, it would be harder for him to crack like the upper echelon of point guards. And thankfully he has, and that's awesome. But I remember thinking after the, like right after the draft, before summer league or preseason or anything, that I was instantly higher on Ja than RJ because of their respective developmental situations. And the Knicks' developmental situation, to their credit, has improved a ton since they drafted RJ. And so I think they both have been in pretty good spots considering your typical number two or number three developmental context. Um, But that was my relationship. Had him very, very close and was just sort of looking at scarcity in the league and sort of what mattered. I mean, you can only go up from the, uh, the bottom in terms of developmental situation. So I'm happy we're, we're far from there. And we now have whole coaches, plural, dedicated to development, which is a crazy idea that they did not subscribe to at the time. And that's all I will say on that. <laughs> I, can we have a discussion about John Morant as a prospect and how that's kind of panned out? Because I, I had a, there were a few areas or like few guys in this draft that I was pretty different on compared to consensus and i had morant down like in my third tier which was kind of broad tier but like lower in that tier at like pretty like like 12 i'm tied with you know average around like about like i don't know say like around like nine or something like that is probably Mm -hmm. more representative because like okay the theory basically goes like this and i was actually talking with someone else about this yesterday trying to get some some sympathy obviously (laughs) clearly i it was a misevaluation on a few fundamental points but Okay, just, I mean, hear me out for a second. Um, If you can't shoot, or you don't project to shoot that well, and you don't play defense, which he was, I thought, a worse defender than Trey Young in college, which is like saying something. Um, Like, there are, how many guys can you name that are driving playoff success in the NBA that don't shoot and also don't play defense? Like, you have to have, extremely special traits i mean even just the list of guys that are 
you know, that you could say are like a one or a two on a championship quality team that don't shoot like that list is like actually really short. And usually they have some kind of other freakish quality that's really, really driving their value. So I thought, okay, Morant, obviously, you know, great playmaker, really quick. But even in the NBA, the best uh, athletes can't just drive by people. And I, I really stand by that, except for last year when Giannis just decided, hey, I mean, this is kind of how the Suns were playing him, I think. But Giannis said, look, it doesn't matter if I can't shoot and you guys are going to play off me. I'm still going to get to the rim. Obviously, he has some physical advantages that allow him to kind of do that. But um, it hasn't always been the case, even for him. So I guess that was kind of my thing was like, hey, plus he's small, right? Um, so like, you know, this guy has like almost everything against him, except for he has this amazing offensive feel for passing and this undeniable driver, even when he doesn't shoot, you know, he's still able to get increases and get to the rim and is, you know, has good touch at the rim, um, was always kind of a decent finisher, uh, in college more so than just like the athletic freaks like Russell Westbrook or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, and I still, I still stand by a tiny bit of that as a, not a maxim, but like a, a really, really worrisome set of, uh, red flags, not playing defense and not shooting. I still think that that is like a really, really terrible place to start. And you have to have some amazing qualities to kind of overcome that. And maybe I should have seen that in Ja. Uh, I probably should have like, the degree to like his playmaking and just quickness is is pretty incredible. Um, but do you guys question at all? Like, am I crazy to even bring this up? Like, maybe this is just me trying still to to hold to my my priors too tightly. But are we still convinced that Ja Morant is a he, he's probably like good enough to be a second best player on a championship team, right? Like he's, he's crossed that threshold. He's good enough for that. Right. Or, or are you guys still worried that maybe in the playoffs, his set of like, just the lack of shooting gravity that he has is going to negate a lot of the playmaking stuff that he does so well. So I was, I, I didn't have him like 13th or anything like that, but I, I had the same concerns. I ended up ranking him uh fourth, but like, if you were to qualitative qualitatively describe how I saw him, it would basically be what you said. If you just like tossed the actual ranking number aside, I was like, you mean this? Like, I don't, he's not going to dunk on everybody in the NBA, which was like, first thing <laughs> I was wrong. Still is <laughs> like, I was like, he's not going to dunk on anybody. Like finishing is going to be harder. Like, cause in college, I, I thought he was like a good finisher, but if you took out the dunks, he was like a small guard, which is, you know, that's just a tough, even if you got hops, it's just tough, right? Yeah. Like, even Derrick Rose had to like had amazing touch in in, in addition to his athleticism when it hit, when he was younger, and so it's just a it's just a hard sell. And then the shot was was doo doo, so uh, I I wasn't super confident in that, and and the defense was trash, like you said. So I, I I shared the same thing. For me, it was more just like there wasn't any. It, this wasn't a deep draft of like elite level prospects so i still ended up having him high because of that but the concerns are like are super valid and even last year like he, he let me just say from the start from the get-go like this year he's broken through again in a really meaningful way to me i think 
he's I forget what his threes per 100 is at now, but it's at like a respectable level. And, and to me, that's yeah, it's like four or five a game or so. Yeah, no, no, I think it's higher than that because. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it just attempts not. um, I mean, obviously not makes. He's not Steph. <laughs> um, I'll tell you right now. He's at. Six point eight. He was at five point oh, wow. six last year per 100 possessions. So not per game. Um, and to me, like that's like. You know, especially if you're taking pull-ups, like even if you don't, you're not a good percentage shooter. Like that's still like you, people are gonna have to pay attention. They can't just ignore off-ball, sure, but like you, you're a threat to to just shoot it and get hot right at any minute. And we've seen him do that, like random games this year where he just scores like a zillion points because he got hot from three. And um, for him, hot from three is like four for six or whatever. But uh, when you combine that with everything else he brings, that's just tough uh tough puzzle to crack so um i don't know if he's definitely not like best player or anything on a contending team but i i think he's a respectable enough shooter that you can you can deal with that and the defense is like there's lots of point guards who kind of stink at defense you just need him to buy into a scheme at some point and I mean, I have, the Grizzlies defense is like a whole nother podcast because they were like randomly really good last year and now they kind of stink, but their offense is good. And I, I, don't, I don't even know. I don't even feel like I'm in a good place to judge like what level of detrimental his defense is because Grizzlies games be too late and I'm old and on the East Coast and I don't got time for that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm really with you. Like he's broken through, but to me, I feel like this is... I mean, this is kind of like a a cop-out, but has he bucked the odds in some ways? I would say yes. I would say yes, he has. I don't think anybody expected it. I mean, I shouldn't say anybody, but I don't think many people expected him to put up the kind of numbers he's putting up now should he maintain that. Well, first of all, um, no defense and can't really shoot. I mean, are, are y'all talking about Ja or Zion here? <laughs> I so, have many weird well, questions about Zion's defense. <laughs> That's another topic that I want to queue up for his, later. His college defense, though. No, his college defense was good. But no, yeah. the the reason I bring it up is that um, the college shooting from three favored Ja. And this is not something that I was like privy to. I want to be clear that mm-hmm. my me having him high, I was influenced a lot by the fact that consensus had him high and he was really fun to watch and he, I could tell he was making Murray State much better than they had any right to be. I think they blew out Marquette in the first round of the tournament. All the sort of traditional, sort of unsophisticated ways of evaluating a prospect. I just like liked, I really liked watching him. and He reminded me of Damian Lillard. But going back, if you look at his profile, mm-hmm. um, just, just this is just him and Zion. And I'm not a person who's like, I think Josh should have gone number one. I think that's silly. But he should, Josh shot uh, over seven threes per 100, which is not great, especially nowadays. You would say that that's low, but it's not as though he was unwilling to shoot. Now, Zion got to the rim anytime he wanted, so he didn't need to shoot a bunch of threes, but he shot just about four per 100. Didn't really shoot that much. And Zion shot 34% from three, and Josh shot just under 37%. They both got to the line a ton, and on 260 attempts, uh, Josh shot 81.5%. 
So I agree that the shot kind of looked janky. But if I were to tell you a guy got to the line all the time and shot over 81% and he shot 37% from three on 150 attempts, that's not a non-shooting prospect. Like that's not a he will never be able to shoot kind of prospect. There's like plenty of reason for optimism there. Yeah. And taking that one step further, like another thing I like to do is like, you know, we know we have a better idea now, or at least I do, of how to use statistical indicators than I did in 2019. Mm -hmm. So I'll go back and apply some of the ones that I didn't apply back then, like threes per 100, for example, which is something I didn't use. Um, Field goal percentage on two-point jumpers, I just checked it out for his Murray State uh, 2018-2019, 39%. It's pretty good. It's a tiny sample, still Mm -hmm. pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, Percent of threes assisted 37 percent that's pretty pretty low i mean it's not like cole anthony low where it was like five or something like that but it was was, he was pulling up a lot of the time is what that means so that's pretty solid so yeah like if you do you know i i think the jankiness of the shot may have influenced the the opinion uh a little bit for sure Mm -hmm. yeah and i think um I would have to run a couple filters to look at how rare he was, but in going back the last couple of years, like you just, his assist, I mean, obviously Murray state, he's going to have a high assist percentage because everything's going to revolve around him, but his assist percentage was over 50, which really that's like him and Trey young. And that's basically it. And Sharif. And (laughs) that's right. And Sharif. Um, And he had 28 dunks. Now, you know when you watch Jai, you're going to see him dunk everything, but you just don't get this combination of things, even if he's an, if even if he wasn't a high major player. So, um, again, just to say, like, I wasn't using these stats back then. I think a lot of people weren't. But if you you look at that combination and you see how rare it is, and I think it is less surprising that he has bucked the odds in the ways that he has. I think if anything, one of the ways in which he's bucked the odds is that he stayed pretty healthy. And I remember that being a significant concern for him coming out because he was so slight and he seemed so reckless in the air. And, you know, he could get injured tomorrow. Who knows? Um, But the fact that he has stayed as healthy as he has is obviously like a big differentiator between. I mean, we can talk about I'm sure we're going to hit on DeAndre Hunter eventually, but it's just. It's it's something you can't really predict, like not really, unless you have a prior injury history to red flag. And the fact that Jaws stayed healthy obviously has boosted uh, his profile. One thing that uh, that I try to think more about now is like not all physical developmental needs are created equal, and and some of them are lower hanging fruit than others and for Ja he was never going to be some you know jacked dude or anything like that but you needed to get him basically balanced enough and strong enough to survive a bunch of falls to fall less and to just do like gymnastics in the air basically so like a lot of core balance yoga type stuff and mm-hmm. that's really not asking something crazy like he especially for someone who's already athletic in the ways he is and i don't think he had any um at least in the two years at murray state i don't think he had any glaring injuries so um that was one of the things that i remember thinking like i was like oh my god 
how is he going to finish well and defend well if he doesn't have any core strength? He's so skinny as if like no NBA player had ever gotten more core strength. So it was uh, a <laughs> not, not a great call on my part. Um, friend of the pod PD. Uh, if y'all haven't checked out his, a, uh, sports science, uh, I don't even know the name. I should know the name. He has a podcast where he talks about this exact thing with John Morant and it's pretty sweet. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing a pod with, a. Gosh, I forget his name. This guy who's a who's a doctor and a physical therapist. And the first episode they did was like John Morant, John Morant and core strength, literally. So very on the nose for uh, what we're talking about. But, you know, we we got a lot of players to go through. And as much as I want to do a pod about John Morant, we are over here contractually obligated to talk about one R.J. Barrett. So I would like to do that. <laughs> um, you mentioned you were high on him. Uh, I was one of the people who probably galaxy brained a little bit too much. And what did I have him? I had him like one, two, three, four, five behind Zion, Brandon Clark, Jared Culver, John Morant. Um, to me, him and Jared Culver were really similar, weirdly, even though, you know, their careers have gone vastly differently upon entering in the NBA. So I just want to talk about those two guys for a little bit. Um, Sean, where where were you at for those two guys? Um, Barrett and who else? Jared Culver. He of the uh, likely to... I really hope he stays in the NBA. I'll just leave it at that for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. He's I mean, he's interesting. Someone that I wouldn't... I mean, obviously, anybody as a, like a single data point, I wouldn't look at and say, oh, I, I need to learn my lesson about XYZ or whatever, unless it's like very general. Um, he's like a particular case just because of some of the... Um, like just like weird psychological psychological that's probably not the right word but like some confidence issues that are kind of extreme um there were some things that i think were probably not very uh projectable with him some mm-hmm. stuff that most people couldn't know and also that people in the league getting uh information about him couldn't have predicted that it would have gone that way uh as a prospect i i had a number 3 kind of in that second tier pretty much tied with i had hunter number two culver three and clark four in a second tier and they're all pretty much tied for me um i mean culver just his size his feel his developing jumper his on ball defense that was much better than you would have expected from someone with his kind of uh, athletic profile and just his general feel at that size and skill combination was like you know exactly the kind of player that I love and that I think is really valuable as a role player next to the best players in the league on really good teams. Um, and so I was pretty high on him, but just because like he failed, I guess my point is like, I still think you should bet on that grouping of skill, right? Like that, that kind of profile of player, it's still probably a safe bet. Like maybe you bought, maybe we could you, know, you say, don't buy so much into a jump shot like that. Like you're kind of, because you like a player like that, you're kind of looking on the bright side and you're saying like, oh, no, there's there's improvement there with like his his shot is developing or whatever. His form obviously changed. It was his form was wonky as a freshman, got a lot better as a sophomore. And the percentages still weren't like super exciting. Like the frequency wasn't very exciting. But um, yeah, so I had him there and I think that was probably the right choice. Like in hindsight, I think I still would have ranked him there. Right. Like if you go back in time, not knowing what's going to happen or whatever, I think you still bet on a player like that. Um, and then Barrett, I had number six, uh, kind of in this really big third tier with like 
Kobe White, Jonte Porter, Matisse Thybul, Chumo Kiki, Cameron Reddish, Cameron Johnson, John Morant, PJ Washington. Just like a lot of a lot of guys like that. Barrett. Barrett, I still think he struggles with a lot of stuff that he struggled then. Um Oh yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean how much do you want to go into Yeah, I'll just stop there and let other people kind of just ramble about him as a prospect. But I mean he's I don't know that like he's he's interesting developmentally wise because I don't know that he's changed all that much. Like his strengths have gotten a little bit stronger. Um, but I still think the weaknesses that he showed there are the things that are kind of holding him back from being a really good NBA player. Yeah. I'll say on uh, Culver, Sean, I agree basically with everything that you said as far as wanting to, you know, he's a guy who you would want to bet on. Um, I also think that he's a tough, like you said, he's a tough one to learn a lesson on. And I'm not going to speculate on any sort of psychological information because I don't have it. I'm not going to speculate on it. But it's also true that Minnesota was not the best developmental environment at that time one could argue it's still not the best developmental environment. And so like you, I, we can't divorce the prospect from the context. And that was a team when they took Culver that was in need of shooting and was already relying on cat for sort of their entire spacing concept. And that isn't going to help a guy like Culver. You know, I, I had Culver in the top 10. I had him a little bit lower. But, you know, seven or eight, you know, still really liked him. And uh, the only thing I can think of in retrospect is, Prez, you're right. He and RJ had very similar pre-NBA years. Um, You know, pretty indistinguishable. But the one thing that jumps out was that RJ was just a bit like he's just bigger, bigger and stronger and commands more on-ball reps, even if that was even if it comes off as or if it came off at Duke uh, as a little bit stubborn at times, how he would just plow into the lane and just go and go and go. The, the fact is you always knew that RJ was going to get on ball chances in the NBA, partially because of his pre-college career and his status as this number one um, overall recruit. Exactly. Pedigree is the right word. So the fact that, a player like that gets those opportunities in the NBA his first few years means that they, you know, it's just another avenue for them to succeed and try to develop. Whereas Culver, who really only developed that stuff in his sophomore year and still sort of projected as sort of a connecting-ish kind of a wing, it just sort of narrows it. It just means that if he's going to have the ball less, he's really got to shoot. And so though they both had similar shooting uh, problems, that I think if there's a lesson to be learned, it's if if your guy can't shoot, make sure that he can get to the rim and handle the ball and play make a little bit. Otherwise, he could get squeezed. And that's, you know, that's a lesson I'm learning, you know, on Isaac Okoro, who I was very high on the next year. So that it's Chuck, but I think Chuck, for the said, most for the most part. Barrett, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, you said that Barrett and Culver were similar prospects. In what way would you say that they were similar? Just that I'm just looking at their statistical output that oh, year. Got it. They both so they shot similar percentages on similar volume um, at the rim in mid range from the free throw line and from three. Um, RJ got a few more up, but and I know that this doesn't account for the different offenses that they played in and whatever. But 
just looking at that, which is something that I weigh in my stuff, that it, it being that similar would mean that I would have them pretty close. If I were to do it all over again, I would still have them pretty close. Yeah, I I think you really articulated it well in terms of lessons from their uh, their pre-MBA time and kind of the slight differences having more than slight slightly different implications so like first of all like let's be clear he culver had outlier shooting development the wrong way like yeah. his shot got better from freshman to sophomore year then he came into the league and that shit got jankier and continued to get jankier he made john morant shot look like fucking steph curry and that is just like like you said like for a for a player who doesn't have room to screw up his shooting because of his archetype. Uh, that's pretty much the death knell. Like unless you're Tony Allen on defense or something like that, because he could play make, but the whole thing is you need the ball. And this is again, this is a lesson. I took this lesson and this was one of the reasons I was lower on Okoro and also lower on Denny for the same reason. I was like, you could be a great playmaker, but you need like, they're not, you're not going to get charity reps out here. This is that's the league. Right. Like, yeah. You got to command those reps. And that was one of the things that I brushed off about RJ, which some of that, yeah, is due to pedigree. But some of that is also like, like, I remember thinking my back of the napkin test back in the, at that time was like roughly defined, kind of blurrily defined. I need two or three elite skills for me to be really high on someone. And for someone like John Morant, super easy. I'm like, this guy is a fucking rocket and he's an amazing passer. and that's even before I like understood about free throw rate, which he was amazing at and stuff like that. But with RJ, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't really know. And with Culver, it was kind of the same thing. I, I with Culver, I kind of just like hand waved it away more. Um, probably because a lot of other people were high on Culver and I was kind of trying to, I, I bought into it at the time. Um, for a lot of the reasons y'all have said, like he's, he's big, he's strong, he's smart, he ran the offense a lot. Um, so you even if he's downsized in the NBA, a player who can do that is better. That's better to have that than not, generally speaking. Um, he's physical, wasn't unathletic, um, even though he did need, you know, similar to RJ, they, they both need a little bit of a runway to get up there. Um, I thought the shot was going to be fine. So it, I, I didn't, the what RJ ended up being, elite at that I didn't really realize was drive was manufacturing drives and manufacturing rim attempts for a wing. Um, obviously the point guards like Morant are going to do that way more than a wing, unless they're a very special prospect like Zion. But like, even now that's, we see that with RJ, like that's pretty much what he hangs his hat on is like a bad layup is better than a mediocre jump shot. And mm-hmm. he might have some ugly layups and flip shots, but can you can get him pretty much whenever he wants, as long as you give him a screen. So, so uh, RJ is yeah. also a like a legit six seven, you know, and that's I think for a while, and maybe it's still happening. I don't know. For a while, the idea was just if you can get a wing, get a wing, and I don't, I don't think there's been enough distinction between types of wings and how six six wing is great, but a six eight wing is, is much better. You know, if all other things being equal, which obviously it isn't, that isn't usually the case, but 
that it's just another like RJ's strength in manufacturing those drives and his overall uh, just frame as a player. He just you knew that he was going to be an NBA wing for ten years in some capacity. With Culver, I remember there was a actually a little bit of controversy because I think when Texas Tech was making their run. I think there was a thought that he was that size, that he was like 6'7", and then around the combine, it was 6'6", or shorter than 6'6", in socks, or something like that, and there was like a little bit of a letdown. I don't remember if that affected my ranking or not, but just just another thing to keep in mind, that if if you're valuing someone as a wing, whether they're on the smaller end of wings or the bigger end of wings at their skill set, I think is relevant. And I mentioned Okoro earlier. He's another one you know, who is smaller than you'd think. And even though he plays on the wing, those differences uh, can lead to, they can expound in terms of how useful they are as NBA players. Yeah, he's basically the same size as RJ, but he plays like a bigger physical, a physically larger wing role than than someone like RJ does. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on real quick, that's just like another ally took related to RJ um, in terms of valuing the, you mentioned the, the pre-college information. And obviously RJ had a lot of hype. He was by many people considered better than Zion coming in, which was wrong. And one thing that I saw at Duke, and I don't know if this was him or coach K or his offensive responsibilities, but I wasn't really that impressed with his defense at Duke. And they were like the best defensive team and Zion and Cam were out here flying around. And what's his face who they had at center was flying around and Trey was flying around and, and then, like, I remember the matchup with Culver. Culver's defense was way better than RJ's, and Culver put up 25 on him on top of that. And I was like, just, like, he has no elite skills. He can't shoot. He's not a great finisher. And his defense is, like, kind of shaky. Like, I don't know about all this. But later, uh, when we, we – I remember we had PD on our on Pod Strickland once, and he was basically saying, like, he was never worried about RJ's defense because this guy has just been – has basically been a professional hooper or in a professional environment for so long. He's had like the most elite training coaches, like influences basketball minds around him. So just understanding he might not be like a miracle genius defender or anything, but just understanding and buying in to defense as with his physical traits was something that PD was never worried about despite his performances on defense at Duke. And it was one of those things where like, in retrospect, maybe it was as simple as like, this guy had to shoot a lot. He was a kid and they were really good at defense. So why? Like he was, he was fine. He did what he did and it was fine for the team. So why change it? And then even when we had stupid Fisdale, like he was very, he was clearly from his rookie year. I was like, you could put all the offensive stats aside. Like he was much better on defense than I expected on a dysfunctional team too. So, um, Prez, can I ask you, what is your, <laughs> what is your defensive evaluation of him right now? Uh, this year or last year? Cause Nick's fucking up on defense this year. Um, <laughs> well, just, just generally, I would say like, where do you think he is as a defender? Yeah. I think he's kind of, a, He's kind of like a impressive, boring defender. Like I, I don't think he's ever going to be like an All NBA defender just because he doesn't have the freakish tools in terms of like length or or quickness or instincts for gambling and like predicting stuff that a lot of those All NBA guys have. But what he's really good at is 
what I what I think is Tibbs favorite defensive trait in any player, which I jokingly but not jokingly call being large and in the right place all the time. And I think especially this year, now that he has to do a lot more, um, he has more on ball responsibility. Uh, that's, you know, he, he can get a little sleepy sometimes off ball, but even last year he was, uh, for the most part, like when RJ Barrett is the help defense, like that's a basically like a random brick wall that just appears like you're not, you're almost certainly not stronger than him unless you're like an actual big man. So, uh, he was pretty solid in that respect. And now he's getting to do more one-on-one defense and he's improved a lot at that. Um, he's, he's really quick. He like never bites on pumps. Again, he's never going to like have the most impactful contests because 6667 with a 610 wingspan like that's different than if Giannis is on you or something like that. But um like for the most part he's he's just kind of solid like more I would say more than just a, a cog but not not a centerpiece on defense or anything like that. But he needs to stop fucking giving up back doors. Damn it. <laughs> Yeah, I would, I would say maybe I'm a little bit lower on you overall. I mean, you've seen way more games than I've seen of him as a Nick for sure. Uh, last year, when I watched him in a couple of games this year that I've seen, I'm just, I mean, he's he's fine. I think he's in the, the pack of like, you know, an average, maybe slightly below average kind of playoff defender at his position. Definitely mm. above the threshold of like getting hunted, right? So, oh yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Th- there's always going to be someone on the floor that he's going to be able to adequately guard, um, but he's not bringing like extra there, I think. Um, but he, he's definitely fine, and you know the strength, obviously, like you said, is probably his biggest advantage. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that this year. Like, he's been matched up against Tatum, Demar and a few other like legit wing scorers. And he's always the stronger physically he's, he's stronger than them. And, yeah. and he's used that to like, they had rough fucking horrible nights against them and it wasn't an accident. And like, it's because you can shoot over him, but he's going to make And obviously the Nick, he has help, right? Like Tibbs and Mitch and Nerlens and Taj and Julius and all these other large guys. So like there's backup, um, which helps a ton. Um, so yeah, I mean, his one-on-one defense is is sneaky good in that respect. Um, it's he just needs to be a little more consistent off ball because, like, he's never gonna what he's doing this year that where he's taking a step back is um he's gambling a lot and he just doesn't have the tools for that. Like, for you to be gambling and out of place and just have that shitty steal rate and block rate, like that's not your thing, bro. Just stop trying yeah, to play. He's kind hero of a defense. slower decision maker. Yeah, he's not, he doesn't like recognize it so early. He's not like Hiroko, you know, where he's just like right or Vassal he can kind of have a sixth sense for yeah where the pass is going and the open man and all that stuff. He definitely yeah. does. He's never really had that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need RJ trying like Thibault type shit. Like I need him to just do the boring stuff, which he's really good at when he buys in. And um, you know, his defense is very, especially last year, was very emblematic of how Tibbs wanted all of the Knicks to play on defense, like. It's funny, the Knicks had a, you know, really good defense and, you know, we could talk about three-point luck and all that, which played a role, but um, there's a whole article on the Strickland about that that I recommend people read if they're interested on this subject that really gets into the nuances, but, like, the Knicks were an elite defense, arguably, if you ask some people, without any elite defender, and that's 
because they had all their guys often in the right position and size. Like that's really what it comes down to. Like if you can do that as a team, you can be more than the sum of your parts. Um, so if you put RJ on like a generally tire fired defensive team, he's not raising that team's defensive floor. But if you put him on a team with other good defenders, I think he's more impactful if that makes sense. Yeah, I just to sort of piggyback, and this will be, I guess, a slight disagreement. It's kind of, I mean, I don't think I'm breaking new ground here, but like if RJ <laughs> is an average, like Sean, if you think he's he's floating around average as a playoff defender at 21 years old on the wing, I think that's reason for like optimism, not skepticism. Like I just, if you think about the universe of playoff defenders, which includes, you know, offensively tilted guards who can be hunted and it includes uh, maybe offensively tilted bigs who can't switch. Like having someone like RJ who can at least like survive one-on-one or at least make things difficult one-on-one for guys his size on the other team. I mean, that is a pretty useful marker in my book. And I, I agree he's not like a disruptor, but I don't know that he would really need to be to be, you know, I, I guess he's taken number three. And so you would want him to be one of the two best players on a title team. Uh, he's certainly not there yet. I think the chances of that are, are, you know, pretty remote, but not non-existent. But still, I think the chances of him being like the third best player on a contending team or on a conference finals or finals team. I think those chances are, are pretty solid because I don't know that he's taken anything off of the table for himself in these first couple of years. So I, I just, it's, this is where sort of the wingishness helps people the most is on defense in the playoffs, in my opinion. Um, and he's got it, you know, he is one of the most, you know, wingy wings that he, like in terms of prototypical size and strength and work ethic and everything else that you could kind of dream up. So I, I don't have as much of a problem with his defensive projection. Now, maybe his current evaluation, yeah. But as far as his projection, I one, think it's pretty good. One big change that happened that helped him a lot is um, the Knicks stopped. Fizz tried to play him at the two a lot and, you know, to make a bigger lineup and all that. But, like, uh, if you know, if we want to nitpick a little bit, like, he does struggle with very quick players. Um, yesterday, um Brogdon gave him a little bit of trouble uh, sometimes, but like if you can keep him on wings and even bigs, like it's, it's a much better proposition for the Knicks. And, and they made that switch in last year and uh, it definitely paid, paid some dividends for him. Cause he's like, you said, he, he basically has shooting guard, me- like, like solid shooting guard measurements in terms of height and length for a wing. Meh. Right, like six, 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 seven, six, ten wingspan. That's not. There's so many crazy wingspan height athleticism guys that like that's not really that impressive. I actually think that's better than you're giving it credit for to be yeah. a legit six seven with six ten. I mean, I think there's lots of wings that are less dimensioned than that. But sorry, keep going. No, that's true, and I mean that's that's, that's pretty much what I was getting at. It's just like you. You know, playoff wings are are the current are, are the currency in a lot of ways, and because uh, guards are just such an offensive offensively tilted position. So one of the big questions for his playoff defense going forward is how's he going to deal with it when he's switched on to these like nuclear guards and um 
he's getting better. He's getting physically. He's getting more. He he's very good at like not not the not biting and stuff like that is is really helpful versus guys like that. Like I mean, it was a preseason game, so it doesn't really count. But like he played the Wizards in the preseason, and I I was at the game because I live in DC, and he was on Beal the whole game. And I mean, they trained together, so I'm sure he took it personally. But like. Like Beal had him running around all the screens and doing all that shit that he does, and he was sticking with them. And I was like, I was very impressed. So I don't know. Um, he's versatile, boring, and effective. That's pretty much my uh, RJ Barrett summary. But um, again, I want to move us along a little bit, even though we're doing these deep dives, and I'm absolutely here for it. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is Darius Garland, the mystery man of the draft, because he got hurt after, I think, three games. And let me tell you, kind of player which Prez is automatically going to be irrationally in love with is Darius Garland. It was any guard who comes in with like fully formed elite handle like that, especially the flashier variety, is like... You're like, man, like him and Kevin Porter Jr. Whew, like I was completely unreasonable, but I was also scared because I, I, I didn't see nothing about him and I didn't really dig into high school for him. So I just had no idea how to approach him. Um, I wrote a joke. I think this was the year that I did this. The first edition of this joke article series back on posting and toasting called Disrespectful Draft Comparisons, which I do every year now. And I think my high end disrespectful comparison for Darius Garland was, was it Hunger Strike Kyle Lowry? It was something like that. And, <laughs> and I was like, it's like, like he's closer to that than, than I would have thought in reality. I mean, the defense still has a long way to go, but like, Boy, has he blossomed into a player? Anyway, what, how did how did y'all just think about him back then? Because I legit basically was like, I don't fucking know. People seem to be still kind of high on him, even though he's horrible on defense, probably. So I guess I'll stick him in my top ten. Like <laughs> that was pretty much it. Uh, Sean, yeah, I had yeah. Go ahead, man. I had some um, some high school priors. Obviously, the college sample was really small. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the high school stuff was a little bit different because he played a slightly different role in some of the best um, pre-college film that you can find of him. He was he would play. Uh, gosh, I forget the name of the other guy, but he was a little bit out of position. He wasn't always on ball. Um, but anyway, in, in college, he was the guy that I was probably most different on than consensus. Besides maybe like besides Rui Hachimura, I was pretty pretty low on Rui, like really low on Rui. And I was also really low, on, really low on Garland. I had Garland down in like my twenties, like mid twenties. Like, I think here's the problem with a guard like him um, as, as a prospect that I, I, I think usually if you bet against that set of skills, you're right. Most of the time, <laughs> um, maybe, maybe I should have, you know, maybe I should have given allowance for a little bit more development or some upside that he had access to that a lot of guys don't. But someone at that size that doesn't play defense, um, that's going to live off of pick and roll sets where they're shooting off of the dribble, their shot better be unbelievable, and they better be a a much better playmaker. Um, and I thought Garland was just he was kind of a fake prospect in that way. Like there were some flashes of those things, but generally he didn't excel on tape in getting 
good pull-up shots from three off the dribble. And his playmaking was much more flashy than it was substance. And he doesn't play defense. So, like, what, you're betting on him to be... In fact, I think even now, I'm much lower on, on him as as an NBA player. I don't really think he has a ton of... Um, I, at least where he is... Yeah, I mean, obviously he's still young and you know he could improve and yada yada. But um, at his age now, the the uh, the development curve is usually starting to start to flatten out for guys, even at his age. I know that's pessimistic, but I think I have to be that guy, a little dose of realism. I I think even now, I'm not as excited. And I think you see that Cleveland has taken a large step in when they have Rubio, somebody who can genuinely create for other people, who's a much, much better playmaker. Um, is he though? I, I would push back a little bit on that. I think Garland, if last year maybe, like I mean, Rubio's as great a playmaker as any, but like Garland is a he's had some amazing like playmaking this year. Like just and, like there's a reason I think, they I think lead generally the... you'll see in the numbers that their offense runs mm-hmm. much much better, and that Rubio has a lot more on ball responsibility than Garland does. And yeah. I think the proof is in those lineups and and their offensive ratings and and um and last year they just they still weren't very good like he wasn't really driving he wasn't the force that was driving their efficient offense you know what I mean yeah I mean that's that's fair I I think I mean he's not in this draft that was another reason why the the thing with him and Colin Sexton is kind of weird because like that that fit is not gonna just get it done on defense but at the yeah, same time like. Colin gives the cat something that Rubio and Garland doesn't, which is shot creation. Well, Garland can do more of that now than he used to, but like not like Colin. So, like Rubio gives you gave you gives you more playmaking, but not the shooting. Garland gives you a lot of playmaking, but not the shot creation, and not quite the playmaking that Rubio gives. So it, it's definitely a weird bunch. But um, I don't know, like. I guess one one follow up I have for you in terms of evaluating his jump shot projection, like to me, I didn't, I didn't. Again, I told you I didn't watch his high school stuff, but just mechanically, I'm a big shot mechanics guy, and you know, I don't think I think if you understand that, I don't think you need a huge sample size to have an idea of where it's going. And to me, his his thing looked beautiful coming even in those few games and i was like i don't know you know i'm not going to say anybody's ever going to be like a healed level shooter or something crazy like that but like for me the shooting wasn't going to be a question the big one you you indicated that i shared was was the playmaking i was like he has fantastic handle but it's more cool than it is effective so is it going to actually translate into you know improving an offense like we said that was my big thing but for the shooting like, were you more of the opinion that his his shooting was good, not great? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's a that's a pretty good way to put it. I mean, I think there's not. I mean, well, I'll just say this: there is not good evidence that correlates shooting mechanics to eventual shot production. Yeah, it's very um, subjective. There also. are so many different <laughs> ways that humans do this motion and are successful at, and different bodies have different, you know, uh, joint placement and flexibility and what, like, people do it in different ways. Like, we invented this thing, right? It wasn't, like, passed down from God. We didn't, like, discover shooting. We 
we literally made it up. So there's no like perfect way of doing it. And I, I, I wish that like there was a better way to like know about that kind of thing. But I, I guess I, I have just become very, very skeptical of like factoring and shooting mechanics at all. And, and like the best models that I've, I, I know I kind of parrot this a lot, but like the best mo- shooting models that I've ever seen still have like a variance. A, a, stand, a, sing, a standard deviation of like five percentage points <laughs> on your three point shot in the NBA, which is yeah. massive. At that point, so, yeah. yeah. So, I guess what, what the point that I'm making is with him to have him be a successful uh, player in on a championship, like in the playoffs, you you want his off the dribble shooting to be very very good, and if it's not. It, like it's rare that guys like that will have a lot of value. You know what I mean? So yeah, his shot, his shot looked fine, but like based on the high school stuff and a little bit of the college stuff, I wasn't ready to go. Yeah. I think this guy's going to be a nuclear off the dribble shooter. So then how do you justify really putting the ball in his hands? If he's not going to be an amazing, efficient playmaker, um, an advantage creator, and he's just going to be a giant negative on defense, obviously, like what is this package of skills really amount to? And I think despite how fun of a player is, like I love watching him play and the promise that he might have as a regular season player for Cleveland, I still kind of hold to the fact that I don't know how valuable of a of a um, playoff player he's going to be. I mean, we'll see. He might continue to develop at the rate that he currently is and he'll surpass kind of the average development curve or whatever. Um, and I, I hope that for him. And I hope that for me because I love watching him play. So like, doing it at higher and higher levels but there's just like a a passing nuance that he doesn't have when when he does create advantages which is a little bit harder for him than someone for example like Trey who is arguably a worse shooter in terms of results but his nuance in creating that advantage in the pick and roll manipulating that and capitalizing on like the slightest windows like he's not doing that and i think at his size and his defensive <laughs> I don't, uh, skill level, I think you have to be really, really good to justify getting on-ball reps in the playoffs, like to be driving playoff success. And I, and maybe I'm too, I think a lot of people see me as too harsh in that standard, but I, I don't know. I, I want to win in the playoffs. I think that's what matters. So how, how um, do you view someone like a Van it. Fleet as a playoff player? Yeah. Because we can talk about like, he's a better regular season defender, but like there's whole Ben Taylor videos on how Nick nurse was pulling stuff out of his butt to hide Fran Van Fleet versus the Celtics. And yeah, so there, you know, there are matchups where Van Fleet doesn't do well. For example, a couple, well, I mean that year in the playoffs, the 2019 year in the playoffs when I was with the Sixers mm-hmm. and we, you know, uh, the, the, the Kawhi shot or whatever at the end of game seven, um, in that series, Van Fleet <laughs> was terrible because there was nowhere, there was no one for him to guard. Mm-hmm. When he can guard a like-sized player, he's often very good, and he's mm. really good off-ball. Um, you know when when the opposing offense allows him to be. So you know there are several teams in the playoffs in which he's shined in the past. In the finals that year, he was defensively he was very good. Um, so you know there are matchups in which he'll definitely win. Garland will always be a negative and will always be hunted on or off ball, um, you know, pending that the offense 
has the ability to do that, which most playoff offenses will probably. I'll just, for my two cents on Garland and if, like emphasis on two cents, cause I didn't have like <laughs> a refined opinion on him. Um, I leaned uh, Sean's way on it. I think I had him like 15th or something like that. Um, but it, I mean, I had so little real information cause I didn't dive into sure. his high school tape. I just didn't think in what I saw from him that his playmaking blew me away. And I was just, and it was as simple as like, all right, small guard who like needs to get his playmaking better. Isn't going to play defense. I'm, I'm not going to like fall in love, so to speak. I, I will say that Garland is better than I thought he was going to be again with my sort of unqualified opinion on him, but uh, in support of what Sean is saying now about him, it seems like his reputation now is that he is this really, really good playmaker. And even in a, a very surface level stat, and just because his stat is surface level doesn't mean it isn't <laughs> useful. He, his uh, assist to turnover ratio was less than two to one. And last year, it was just about two to one. And at age, I agree with Sean that at age 22, if playmaking is going to be one of the things that separates you from your NBA peers that gives you surplus value, it does need to be a little bit better than that. And that is even with, you know, bad spacing and, you know, potential assists and teams not converting – our teammates not converting. Um, he's averaging almost four turnovers a night this year, and that's just too many. Yeah, it's yeah, just, just too many. So for whatever, I'm sure someone could like very in a very sophisticated way show what turnovers, like what lanes he's missing, what passes he isn't accessing, where they're coming from. But that sticks out to me about him, and is probably reason for more skepticism than he's than the consensus probably has on him right now. Yeah, the last thing I'll say on him is is we're really I think we're really seeing that now with Colin out because like Colin Sexton for a whole other set of reasons was a bit of a whipping boy for people on NBA Twitter, but <laughs> myself included. Yep. <laughs> but one thing he he hid for uh for for Darius was like Darius Darius can't Darius doesn't drive. Well, he drives, but he doesn't he didn't get he doesn't get really good deep paint touches um he still depends on like a lot of really hard shots around the rim which is always that's a tough proposition right trey trey's miraculous because he's tiny but he drives like a missile and still finishes well from floater and from the charge circle so like somehow he pulls it off um but he didn't have to do that stuff because he could just give it to colin who would do that stuff and with colin out now like like you said sean like rubio can playmake with him without him but like nah man like Darius you gotta go get some buckets now and it's it's a lot harder to create without turning it over when uh they know you're not gonna be as big of a layup threat a penetration threat so there's definitely some weaknesses there um all right we've already gone an hour so I'm gonna change the strategy for the rest of this (laughs) I'm calling an audible and instead of just going down the list Let's just get in. And, and if this takes us in chronological pick order, cool. If not, also cool. Are there any other players who you guys were very high on or learned a lot from in particular or uh, 
just made you think like, damn, like if I had known what I know now, I would have, you know, I would have rated Daniel Gavard so much higher or whatever, or, or, <laughs> or talent Horton Tucker, like people on Twitter loved him. I loved him. And he turned out pretty all right for a guy who was drafted 46, put up 20, whatever yesterday. So like clearly he's doing something right. Um, anyone just jump out to y'all in that respect? Chuck, you go. Uh, can we talk about the uh, Kentucky triumvirate here? This is uh, one of the more underrated <laughs> Kentucky guys who were probably slept on unfairly drafts of the last 10 years. And that's not faint praise because there's plenty of Kentucky players who got slept on. But this, these were three players who should have gone probably uh, in the top 10 when you look back on it in hero PJ and Keldon Johnson. And Oh, I was like, I thought you were talking about Nessie a little. I was like, was like, damn top 10. I know he's having like a solid bench roll. Oh, okay. That's a Tar Heel. That's a Tar oh, Heel. Shit. Yeah. My bad. My bad. No, no. But I mean, it's just, it, it yeah, I will geez, say that on each of those three, I was probably lower than uh, consensus was. And I think maybe I was just like grouchy at Kentucky for whatever reason, because maybe they underachieved and that colored my my very naive, very casual, very casual eyes. Shout out to casuals. But uh, <laughs> I like you. I go back and I look at their I, I've watched a little bit of Kelvin Johnson tape in anticipation for this because I was like, how did a one and done Kentucky wing go 29? That just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but in reviewing all three of them, it doesn't make much sense. Their, their profiles, like the stuff that tends to matter, mm-hmm. at least that I think tends to matter, all of them had very good indicators on. So um, what, where were y'all on PJ Hero and Keldon? I was way lower on all of them than I should have been. And they're some of the ones that exactly as you articulated just now, like I look back at the statistical indicators and I was just like, bro, what the the fuck was I thinking? Like Tyler Harrell was a tremendous fucking shooter and he could dribble Mm -hmm. like in the flashy, cool way that I usually love. And (laughs) even though like Cal kind of puts like the clamps on that a little bit. So like this is before I was well-versed with the, you know, the Calipari theorem where you got to like, assume that they got more juice in the in the squeeze than they showed in college um and go look at the high school tape to find out exactly uh what that juice is but yeah like pj i didn't really look at that closely to be honest because i still spent most of my time just thinking about top 10 because of the knicks but harrow i i looked at and dismissed um probably uh unfairly i would say yeah, and what about Keldon? Did you have an opinion? Not as much, but I the same thing like you just said. I like this guy is a jumping jack, high motor out of Kentucky, so you know like there's again more juice in the squeeze than you might think. And I was low on him, but like man, I, I, I should have just taken a second look or possibly a third or fourth look. Yeah. What about you, Sean? Where were you on those three? Um I had Hero and PJ about where they got drafted, kind of okay. at, at the end of the lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Keldon, I had him, you know, near the end of the first. I think Keldon, Keldon's an interesting one because I don't really have a good sense for how good he is right now in the NBA. I wonder how much of it is just like the Spurs 
magic um that that like the that is gone system that they run yeah and i <laughs> drafted the fuck out of him in my fantasy team and i threw him <laughs> to the curb god damn it i had so many spurs and now all i have is that young who pop refuses to play more than 30 minutes anyway i won't i won't go on yeah, Kelvin had like 27 and five threes the other night just like, he's just, good I'm he's just saying. like he just i don't know i don't yeah, know look i, know. I just I, drafted Derek white and i'm mad that <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I I'm I think Keldon, the film on him, like when you went back and looked mm-hmm. at so so many of the Kentucky guys are um suppressed mm-hmm. in a in like kind of a different way, right? Like mm-hmm. they don't get to show some <laughs> of like the creation stuff. They don't get to show um more of the handle or like there's always a spacing problem because they have like two or three guys that are good and then they have like a bunch of other highly ready guys that were overinflated because they were just dunking on people in high school and they're just <laughs> unbelievable athletes and they're you know all seven feet tall or whatever and so there's just massive spacing problems and there's no ability to create and usually they have like an on-ball point guard that can't shoot so just it's like just a ton of kind of systematic problems like how they're putting these players together and so like, there's a lot of just skill stuff that they miss but like Keldon had every opportunity in the world to create on ball. They were desperate for somebody that year to do something. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it fell on hero and they ran him like they did with the year before with Murray or the couple years before with Murray, or was it the year before or two years before he was two years before with Murray. At least um, like, two. He might even yeah. been earlier, but I, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And, and I just, I felt like, uh, I felt like the more you looked at the film, it was just like, Hey, everything this guy does is a little less effective than you actually think defensively he's really high motor and he's, you know, quote unquote all over the place. And, and there's some highlights, but the decision-making was crazy. <laughs> and he was just like a chronic switcher roamer. There wasn't, it wasn't like smart stuff that he was doing. It was just, Hey, I'm cranking my effort up to like 100, but I'm not really doing anything um, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm just kind of like, um, uh, like I, I'm a high volume defender, if that makes sense. Like, I'm just going to go crazy and there are going to be some highlight plays that look really good, but most of the time it's not going to be actually that effective on ball. He frankly was not that great of a defender. Um, he's changed in so many ways, become just a lot more disciplined as a decision maker. And I, I think generally the trends that I've seen is that you kind of bet against yeah. that, that, that you see. And so look, I'm happy for him that I think he kind of outperformed the, the evidence that he gave. And look, I shouldn't be so stubborn. I should change my priors a little bit, right? Like, um, clearly there's tons of uncertainty in this. But like, I think PJ Washington is kind of about the value of where he's drafted. Tyler Hero is probably underdrafted, I guess. And Keldon was definitely underdrafted based on his production. But based on the film, I think you go back. And if there's another guy not named Keldon Johnson that looks exactly like he did this year, I think you draft him in pretty much the same spot. So I'll push back on that a little. Um... Just because I think that Kelvin, like, I think one thing that Kentucky, I feel pretty comfortable saying this as far as on-ball creation. You mentioned that they were desperate for it. I think that if you're an on-ball creator at Kentucky and you're great at beating your man one-on-one, then great. Then you'll look just fine in Kentucky. But if you, if that is not the player you are walking into Kentucky, then I don't think that they do much to really help you discover new levels to your on-ball creation. And the thing is, yeah, that's you, fair. Yeah. you know, we talk about it with wings, you know, it's, 
wings have a certain versatility, just being that size and being able to do some things a little bit. And what I saw when I look back and look at some Keldon tape at Kentucky is that he was okay, not necessarily as an on-ball creator, but if he caught, if he got to work a little bit in the mid range, he could shoot off of curls, off of pin downs. Um, if he was matched up against a big because of some advantage, either he or someone else had created, he had pretty decent body control as a finisher and could get around and beat that big. He just, he like, he had some cleverness to his scoring package inside the arc. Um, and if you look at his, now I mentioned his indicators uh, earlier, but his statistical indicators, they're not crazy. The ones for PJ and Hero stick out more in certain areas, but he uh, was a good like mid-range shooter and he managed to you know get to the rim and dunk a fair amount. And that is... It sounds like a rudimentary stat, but it's a stat that matters to me. And as a freshman, he got, he had like 16 dunks, which is more than you'd think for most freshmen, particularly most freshmen on the wing on sort of a spacing clogged team. And so I agree that if the defense, if, if he is constantly making mental mistakes on defense, then I think it is okay to bet against players like that. But you let off by talking about his motor. And at some point, like, Keldon was very well built, you know, just a, you knew he was going to be a strong NBA player. And if you're strong and you have an outlier motor, then it does take a good developmental context, but it, but it only takes a good developmental context. If you have faith in your team to understand how to position these guys, then give me a strong, like a strong young wing with a motor any, any day, like a real outlier one. There's plenty of guys who you would say, well, they don't take plays off and they're, they're fine. We don't have to worry about them. But when a guy like RJ or Keldon comes in and you know, their work ethic is, is top notch. That is a real meaningful distinction. And I think the Spurs have, it, it certainly helped that he went there, but I also think that that motor tends to rise regardless of team. Um, and as far as his NBA prospects go, I think his development is actually more or less right on schedule. I don't know what more you would want to have seen from the player he was coming into now. Um, now that doesn't, maybe it means his ceiling's kind of low and whatever, but he certainly should have gone in the lottery of this draft because every other age position pedigree, you know, all that stuff, I think weighs more heavily in his favor. So where were you guys? on Brandon Clark liked him um was not like fully draft Twitter like over the moon top five pick on him um actually preferred Rui to him and that was one where I knew I was if I was if I had a Twitter account at the time that would be very against the grain but I think that was a dart (laughs) that was a dart toss (laughs) I think I had Clark like I think I had him right around Culver seven or eight, and I had Rui six. And uh, I obviously loved Clark for all the reasons everyone else loved him of his absurd efficiency and his timing on defense and how quickly he got off the ground and everything else. And wanted to stand up for him because I felt like the wingspan police were coming for him and you know all this stuff that made him such an attractive prospect. But one of the things that I one of the reasons I thought he could be a top 10 player in the class 
was that he had shown some, some like off the dribble stuff at uh, San Jose State before he got to Gonzaga. And I thought that if he went to the right system, and I thought that, you know, Grizzlies are a very good system, that maybe he could explore that a little bit and he could play a little bit more on the wing. And he's another guy who had a very positive shooting projection, judging from where he started in college to where he finished. So you knew that he could improve at certain skills. Uh, And that's where I was hoping they would go with him. And they haven't really done that. They basically kept him with what he does well. And maybe that was the, the right call. But that was sort of the extra dimension to his game that I thought might be in there somewhere. Um, but just such a unique prospect, um, especially for his size and everything else. But yeah, man, just that, that's where I had him is in the top, like in the top 10, but preferred Rui. We can get into Rui later if you guys want, but. I didn't really have much thoughts on, on Rui. He just seemed like, a uh, I don't know, like his age, his evaluation was pretty short for me. I was like. I did expect him to shoot from three in the NBA because I, I liked how, um, how his jumper looked and I liked his two-point jump shooting efficiency and free throw shooting and all that. But, uh, you know, when Washington picked him that early, I was actually at... Uh, where was I? Oh, I was at fucking Yankee Stadium because I remember I was the only one who wasn't, like, clapping when we picked RJ Barrett. Anyway... Um, <laughs> me alone drinking in the bleachers like a loser and uh but yeah i know i wasn't like i don't know i've the wizards are like sort of my second team just because i get to see them a lot living in dc and i was just like why why like i hope he does great seems like a fantastic kid and he's productive but i was like he's to me at the time i was like he's not the best player from gonzaga so like what are we doing here um anyway I think I think Clark is so interesting. He's like a guy that I would say, um, I, I think, w- without like getting into a, a <laughs> lot of stuff about um, utility functions and, and and probability curves and and whatever. I think that there there's some subset of guys who you would say their average outcome you would expect them to be a worse player than a bunch of people that you have ranked behind them. But because their upside is so valuable that they are worth, you know, being however many slots ahead of other guys that you think will probably be better than them most of the time. Um, And Clark was definitely one of those guys for me. I mean, a lot just depended on his shooting. And because, because I knew, and I mean, because I I think it's still a valid, um, valid thing to think because shoot the shooting outcome is so variable guys that are incredible in other ways that maybe do really don't have a shot. Like the archetype for a Brandon, a Brandon Clark type defender an offensive player um, is, is so rare mm-hmm. in the NBA to like to actually succeed in, in that way is so hard to do. But if you add a shot to him, he becomes one of the best role players um, that you can find and you know one of the role players that makes absurd money mm-hmm. and is the perfect complimentary piece mm-hmm. around you know the best players in the league that basically the bet is like okay if a guy like this shoots then he becomes a top five player in this draft a top four player maybe the second best player in this draft if he doesn't shoot well then 
okay, you know, he's not going to be very helpful and whatever. But he was literally, I think, well, Zion may have been slightly better than him. Or actually, Clark for most of the season, I think, was a better, had a higher percentage from two and was shooting much harder shots than Zion from two. Like, Zion was getting to the rim so easily and finishing over people so easily. So many dunks, so many, like, lay-ins. And Carter just had so many of these little push shots from... Yeah, he shot, like, 90,000% from, like, floaters. <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievable. His touch was insane. And he, like, learned how to play. Like, my favorite thing is, like, the, the, the stories that I heard were, like, when he was a sophomore in high school... He was just this athletic beast that was just great at every sport. And the basketball coach called him up. He was like playing Xbox with some buddies or whatever. He was like, hey, do you want to come play basketball? And he was like, okay, sure. And he just like went to practice that day in like the middle of the season and then became like this, you know, Juco star or whatever. And then eventually transferred to, to Gonzaga. And his shot, he was never really coached on his shot. He was never like asked to ever shoot a jump shot. His like, if you if you went back and looked at the JUCO film, his shot was insane. Like just yeah. the most wild shot you've ever seen. Um. So anyway, I guess my point is like, guys like him. Someone else in the draft, this particular draft that I fell in love with, that I thought probably I, you know, was maybe not the same kind of gamble, but Charles Matthews from Michigan, sure, just a terrible shot was just like probably always going to be terrible and didn't have the good indicators like Clark did for some hope of a shot. Um, he, like a, a reasonably high volume guy everywhere he had been and just zero touch to save his life, right? Something wrong with his cerebellum or whatever, like has my cerebellum, right? You can practice jump shots all you want, but like you're never going to be that good. <laughs> and um, he just one of the most incredible on-ball defenders I've ever seen. Um, and but I, he's probably the best on-ball defender. Is that right? That I've ever evaluated? He's up there. Like, he's probably tied to the top. And, like, if a guy like that can just, you know, can shoot, can be the guy, the guy that learns to shoot or whatever, so many guys do, and they become valuable. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I just think, like, that kind of bet in the draft is very, very worthwhile. Because to be good, you have to have so many things fall your way. And to like take up, like that's why upside in the draft is so valuable because to have a, a successful, uh, not, not just a, a successful draft, but to like find equity in the draft and to have a championship team, like so many things have to go your way. And usually you can look at a roster and go, oh, there's like kind of outlier development on like two or three of their key guys, right? Yep. Um, that's certainly the case if you go back over the, like the, f- the last four or five champions. So I don't know. I, I think that kind of stuff is important. Even if you know it's like a swing, and you're probably going to miss, I think you still have to swing. So it's not like you go back and you go, oh, I had Clark four, so that was wrong. No, it was probably the right decision-making kind of thing. Um, but, you know, you didn't expect the outcome. You expected the outcome to be more of like it is. But um, I don't know. Does that make sense? I'm kind of mincing my words. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't get, yeah, uh, I think uh, the only caveat I'd add, and this is sort of like, it's sort of circular logic. It's like a chicken and egg thing. But if you go, I have, if, so we all had Clark, I guess, in the top 10. Um, the idea, the reason to maybe that we should have been more pessimistic on him is knowing that he was likely to go later in the draft meant that he was likely to be confined to a very specific role. And if you are confined, it's just what we were saying with wings too. Like if you're confined to a specific role, then it's going to be harder for you to develop the other parts of your game. And so 
it's it's sort of like a lame decision making process. You don't want to say, well, because he's going to get drafted lower, therefore I believe in him less. If anything, the impulse is the opposite. You want to shout to the rooftops louder if the guy is going to go lower and you really believe in him. But I think the reality, I mean, especially like the Grizz are good at developing guys, but they're so good that their roster's deep. And so Clark is now scrounging for minutes where if he were in another circumstance, he probably wouldn't need to. In fact, uh, are they good at developing guys or are they just good at drafting? That's a who good, they, who that's they a develop? good point. Yeah. I actually think they might be bad at developing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think they're actually kind of bad at developing. They're just really, really good at drafting. Maybe it's a different, that's a different app that I'm not qualified to say. I'll just agree with you and say yes. (laughs) Sorry, Prez, my bad. That's a whole nother pod. We can do a reunion and and have a referendum on the grids. I actually have been thinking, and this is, this will ruffle other draft Twitter feathers, but if you swapped and the grids would probably have to kick in something to do this, but if you swapped Clark with Jaden McDaniels in Minnesota, um, I would be, I like, obviously I think the Grizz would do that because of McDaniel's all around sort of perception and potential and everything. But I think Clark would be such a nice fit next to Cat. Um, all like he could walk in and help that team. I think more than McDaniel's is currently helping them. And I just, I think that there is still upside to be found with him. I just think he needs the opportunity to get consistent minutes because it's not as though he's going to be an inefficient player. I think he'll be efficient basically wherever he is. It's just, <clears throat> pardon me, it's just a matter of the opportunity. It's a tough it's a tough nut to crack because I thought he was a perfect player to put next to someone like Jaron. I was like, oh, like yeah. a player who's more physical, who can help with the rebounding that Jaron kind of sucks at and can double down on Jaron's rim protection. And can, you know, projects if he continues on a positive shooting curve, which, spoiler alert, he is shooting curve was negative. He's gotten worse shooting, um, <laughs> which is just, again, like we mentioned earlier with Culver, like, that's if that happens, your the prospect is basically fucked. Like, it's very hard to, like, find a prospect whose shooting got worse as he entered the NBA. And I mean, there's still plenty of time, plenty of guys shooting goes up and down early in their career. And then second, third contract, they figure it out and become super helpful role players. So plenty of time, but like not much room for error. Um, you know, despite his defense, because the four is just such a, it's such a skilled position now that like, as good as he is at defense and at shooting floaters and rebounding, it's like, every team has some kind of four who's like incredibly skilled even guys off the bench like on offense so i I don't know it's just a very high bar to clear and like you said he's competing with like kyle anderson and who's you know talk about skilled right like yeah he's competing with and older obviously guys like that so it's it's just really tough um another another guy i was curious to to hear what y'all thought on um i alluded to him before I was obsessed with Kevin Porter Jr. He's uh, on Nick's Twitter, what they might call Presbait, because his handles are super flashy. On and Nick's Twitter, you call things Presbait all the time on your own account. That's because I'm one with Nick's Twitter. That's why. <laughs> it's, 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 it's part of the branding. All right. I'm trying to. This is why I got this podcast. And right. um, 
but no, like to me, he was one of those guys who was like all between the, you gotta, I, I'm, I'm not even talking about the off the court stuff, which is the reason he apparently fell, but like on the court decision-making needs to get straightened out because to me, I looked at him and I'm like, okay, six, six athletic and not in the like subtle athleticism way. Like, no, like first step, second step, one foot, two foot transition, half court. He's got all that deceleration, um, crazy handle. Uh, you know, he, he was very confined in that weird USC team to like standing in the corner and doing a lot of like baseline cuts and alley-oop finishes and, didn't really get much on ball reps because they had like a bunch of like 30 year olds playing. It was really weird Not they weren't 30, but they were more experienced than whatever 17, 18 year old Kevin Porter Jr. So I know like the stats weren't great. And I know the shooting numbers were uh, a little underwhelming. He had a weird, but interesting shooting profile to me where um, he was better. I believe his numbers were better off the dribble than off the catch and his free throw numbers in a small sample weren't great either. So like to me, you know, going back to something I mentioned earlier that like not all physical deficiencies are equally low hanging. The same is true of basketball skill development. Um, Like if guys need to develop different skills, some of them are much harder hand the ball handling, for example, is one of them. Like you can expect a lot of guys to learn to shoot, decent you can't expect anyone to learn to become a tremendous no one goes from mediocre ball handler to incredible ball handler except for Kawhi Leonard and Bradley Beal that's pretty much it so like it to me I was like okay his shot is needs work but it's not busted but he can ball transfer it really well because his handle is crazy his physical traits are crazy like the off the court stuff must be really bad because he's dropping this far. And it, to me, I, I ended up having him, I think, 10th because I was like, I can only drop this guy so far. And I would have had him higher, but I felt very much like echo chamber peer pressure. And I was like, nobody else has him this high. So I'm just going to hedge and keep him over here with Cam Johnson, who I was also high on and in love with. Um, so, yeah. How, what, what did y'all even? Oh, so where would you have him? Like, if you were to re-rank, yeah, to rank these guys right too. now in their current value. That's a where, great how question. Do you value him right now, because you sound like bashful about have had about having had him tenth. How much I, higher would you have him? I don't know, man. Pretty high, because again, like after the the top couple guys, it was kind of a blob for me, and kind of getting to what Sean was talking about about that upside bet. Like, you can't you can't train that kind of ball handling and athleticism you can't so like even if he he could have horrible decision making and mediocre defense for the rest of his career and he could still carve out a solid like spark plug sixth seventh man just from his scoring alone like he's in a clusterfuck weird situation in houston where they're letting him experiment which is you know pros and cons he's not probably not a starting point guard on a great team (laughs) plot twist uh said no one ever so it's, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I would definitely have him like, let me see. Zion, Ja, RJ, um, maybe hero. Aside from that, I don't really, and I don't even know if I would have him higher than hero, to be honest. I mean, heroes carved out a great role for himself in an ideal situation for his skill set, The opposite of what Kevin Porter jr. Has had, um, on the court. So, 
I just I don't know. I I I don't think I could drop him below sixth personally, just given the upside that he still has and the skill base that he has. Mm. That's just me though. I'm obviously a fanatic of sorts. Yeah. I'll, I'll just say I was much lower on KPJ. I probably had him around where he got drafted. I said I got had opinions Word. about 30 guys. He was probably around 30. And it was just because um, I got lost in intangible yeah. land. I mean, this was before, again, before I had more nuance in how I evaluated stuff. But I will say that it seems when you, when you say you would have him like fifth or, you know, thereabouts in a redraft, that you're talking about how his the total value of his career would play out. And I'll just say that for me, I focus very heavily on ranking guys that I would like, if I were making the decision, who would I want to add to my organization now so that we would, you know, you would get the person in your program for whatever, seven, eight years, ideally, Mm-hmm. And that you'd really see the return on the investment. So I like guys who I thought might be quote unquote second draft guys always get bumped down for me. That's totally fair. In, That's totally in fair. my even. And so that was the thing with Porter, but I, I think he also had a random thing where he shot like 50% on free throws in his year at USC, mm-hmm. something weird. He, it was the sort of thing where I heard, like I read enough like scuttlebutt about his off the court stuff that I started, I think looking for things to move, like looking for things in his game to move him down for, which is awful process. But I think that's what I was doing at the time. And I, I think that stuck out to me and I was just like, eh, whatever, I'll put him at the end of where I've got people. But that, that, that's where I had him. Prez, I think I'm kind of on the, on the other side of the spectrum from you. <laughs> I, in, even in both, both in kind of his current NBA value and what he looks like as a prospect, mm-hmm. the, it's interesting that you talk about the upside swing because certainly he had some kind of potential there, right? Um, his ability to just create space was really unparalleled. And there, frankly, like I haven't seen that many guys that had that ability that like that he showed that year. However, I don't think that that's like the kind of quote unquote upside. Like, I don't think those qualities are actually that correlated with up. Like, I don't think that constitutes upside because um, usually guys that can create, space like that like on ball creators use like really efficient on ball creators those kind of guys they have to be so good like to to be in the nba and have be credited with that at a very high level usually you have to be also a good playmaker like those usually come together and you have to be incredibly efficient and you see that pretty early and he's just always been like inefficient except for in high school, he was a decent three-point shooter. And in college, on low sample, he was a decent three-point shooter. Everywhere else, he was always very inefficient. Um, free throw line was obviously really bad. And like since he's been in the NBA, he's also shot pretty poorly, generally. And he's a a really horrid playmaker, to be honest. So like while you see like a lot of highlight stuff that I think is interesting, and it looks like he might be a good creator... He's actually, I don't think, that valuable of an offensive player. And then, of course, like defensively, he has a lot of struggles as well. Like, I just don't think that he's that. I think he he was like an interesting flyer for someone like Houston to kind of bring him in and say, hey, can we rehab this guy? And just to speak a little bit to the intangibles, because obviously like I had an advantage 
sure. being on the inside, you know, whatever. Um, although, let me <laughs> want to push back on myself a little bit. <laughs> so much of like the relevant quote unquote intel, it's if it's bad, it goes public, and you and you know, and you hear about it. Um, what do you mean? If I think it's bad, most, it goes public. If a, like everyone knew that Porter had issues, right? Like that was like Mike Schmitz will talk about it. Yeah, yeah. On podcasts and people will oh, tweet about it. Yeah. Like you'll know about the guys that are really bad. And I think most of the intangible stuff that people talk about, like the armchair psychology stuff that we play, like mm. no one knows how that really affects people except for on the extreme ends of the spectrum. So like, I don't factor that kind of crap in at all to my yeah. analysis and didn't when I was with the Sixers, because a lot of times I was reading those like scouting reports or, and like the Intel reports. And I was like, okay, like <laughs> this is a giant, nothing like there's nothing here that. So, so like maybe a coach likes them or doesn't like him or whatever, but like, there are tons of a-holes in the league, right? Like there are tons of great guys in the league that aren't good. So um, I guess my point is like, he was so bad. His Intel was like kind of extremely bad. And a lot of it, like, frankly, I'm not, I'm not trashing on him as a person. His background was rough, like really, really rough stuff. And he had a lot of like authority issues and the whole USC thing was a disaster behind the scenes, like a massive disaster. Um, and so, like, generally, it was, like, basically, it was, like, my hands were tied at that point. Like, if I were, like, ranking him without knowing that kind of stuff, I still probably would have had him really low. But, like, knowing all that stuff, it's really hard to, like, go, like, yeah, I want to bet on this guy's development, you know? Right. Like, let somebody else, like, if it works out, cool. But, like, let somebody else, let yeah, it work out exactly. on someone else's dime. Like, I, I totally feel that. And I really appreciate, like, kind of how you phrased it. Like, it's as much... You know, I feel like back in the day, a lot of us would talk about like, oh, like issues, and you know, you still see, especially on like more mainstream websites or ESPN, it's like, oh, issues with the kid or whatever. And you know, as you learn a little bit more, you learn it's like issues with the support system and stuff like that. So it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, in terms of his on-court stuff, you're right. Like he's 21 now, and despite my effusive praise, like. Still not a good free throw shooter. Still hasn't put together a consistent three point shooting season. Um, you know, sometimes it can take time for the sample to catch up for uh, for shooting stats, but not with free throws generally. So, like that's that's definitely a flag. And I it, he's one of the, his career arc is just so odd. Even now in Houston, I'm like, this is not you don't talk about like you. Houston supposedly is a good fit because of the support they're providing him like as a person, but like on the court, it's cool to some extent to let a player experiment. I think I wish there was more of that. That's what the G league is for really. But like more often than not, if you try to experiment at the NBA level, you're just going to fucking fall on your face because nobody's experimenting for the most part. People are just trying to win. And you, it's cool for you to experiment as like Kevin Porter Jr. point guard, but like thirty one percent last year, thirty percent this year. Like you can drive and kick, sure, but like, yeah. So like, I, you know, I I told I can I can see pushing taking a page out of your book and pushing back on myself. Like I definitely could see why some teams like if if you had truth serum and were like, what would you give for Kevin Porter Jr.? People would be like, why? What is he? He's not a good shooter yet. He's not a good point guard yet. He's not a good defender yet. Cool let somebody else deal with it and then just yeah. wrap it up and move on to the next subject. Like we're about to do right now. Smooth <laughs> transition. So uh, we've been going for a minute 
Um, one. Oh yeah, DeAndre Hunter. That's who it was. Uh, he's another fascinating player to me. His evaluation was like the most straightforward to me of anyone in the top ten. Yeah, and it was just like the theory of him to take this full circle to where uh Chuck was starting. Like the theory of him as a wing was just time tested, right? Like big, strong, can shoot, smart, knows where to be, defends. Like, what do you want? That's uh I, I ended up having him where did I have him? I ended up having one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. But again, taking the actual number out, I think I still underrated his upside as a shot creator, because he's been like I've been blown away by his development as a shot creator. You know, he's not going to be 25 points per game or nothing, but like he's doing his thing out here, uh, you know, when he's healthy. So like it's he was older, sure, which helps a lot in that respect. But even taking that into consideration, like he's not just a three and D player, which is that speaks very highly to like him, even though he got drafted high, like he, he worked out probably better than a lot of players picked at the four spot. Am I wrong there? Um, I I mean the injury stuff warps this. Yeah, that's true. Sucks, that's right? true. So that damn, I mean, damn, and damn, it's damn, a shame. Damn. But I I think ordinarily, if you were to tell me this is a, I think he, what did he average last year? Like sixteen a game as a second year, you know, starting wing in the league. I think many teams would take that from the fourth mm-hmm. overall pick. Generally, most drafts have three to four like multiple time all stars. So maybe if you're ranking him against the best four players in any draft, but the best four players don't go one through four. So I think, yeah, like in terms of his course, what track he was on, I think that's it's pretty sound. It's just you know he's got to get back on track with his with his injuries. Is he he out for a while? Sorry, what? Is he out for a while? I don't don't know what his timeline is. I I forget his injury. I think he is. I think this time it's his wrist, right? And I want to say that he's going to be out for a couple months. Yeah, wrist injury. I just just checked it out. Extended time. Eight weeks. God damn. Yep, 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 yep. Just sucks. Sorry, what were you saying, Sean? Um, He is like the opposite another kind of <laughs> case like you said a poster boy um for just like tried and true prospect i i feel like he is an interesting test case for the opposite of what i was talking about with brandon clark um i had hunter number two um be, just because when you do the exercise of okay what are all the potential outcomes and their value and then you um you know look at the probability of all of those outcomes uh, and then you weight all of those together, and then you know that's kind of your quote unquote score or feel for a prospect. I didn't think in this draft there were a lot of guys with like super valuable upside. Like, yeah, I was wrong about totally Jaw. Obviously, like I should have, I should have seen that in Jaw for sure. Um, and you know, Clark had some of that upside. Um, Barrett, I thought definitely had some of that upside because of just the unbelievable driving and like deceleration steps and and step through stuff that he showed um pre-college and, and college for sure but um hunter like the certainty 
the floor, the super high floor that he had and the certainty of just this unbelievably valuable archetype. It was just like so obvious to me. And, you know, with every, with everything else in the draft just being kind of um, underwhelming, I thought, hey, like I would think I would take this guy second because I, th- I think I know that I'm going to get a playoff starter, which is unbelievably valuable. Mm-hmm. I mean, playoff starter is a pretty good outcome. So that's that's tough to heart to argue with, and again, it kind of goes to, you know, there's the colloquial definition of upside, and then there's like, if you're realistic about draft outcomes, like playoff starter, is a high upside outcome, as sure. boring yeah, as you get point. there, and if we got that, should probably be in the top five if not higher. So, um, yeah, I, it, it's one of those things where, I, like we we talk about wings every year like like chuck said but how many wings are actually three and d not like squinting like really can do it and can i give you a little something else on top of that like there's probably less than 20 in the league when you take out all nba players i can tell you that since since hunter i'm trying to think if there was another one in this draft but I think in 2020, uh, Vassell qualifies. And you if you squint, you could talk yourself into Patrick <laughs> Williams, but we're not squinting. So I would say Vassell. And I think uh, in this past draft, I'm probably forgetting people, but um, Franz. Yeah. Would be, that, that would be the one there. So yeah, the ones that are like, that you feel confident that like, yes, I know this is going to happen as a prospect. Those would be the three in the last three maybe years. moody that's like the other guy i maybe maybe <laughs> maybe maybe i heard i heard that sounded like a squint so it's, we'll, it's uh... a, i think it's a squint i think it's a squint but i think that like p if you i know i think pd love moody i think i know people love moody so that's i me. think you can, you can make the case but then you you're opening up a broader world of people sure. on which to make the case um yeah 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 and then what sean was saying earlier at the top as well like the difference between like six six and skinny and six eight and jacked which is what hunter or it's he might be even taller i don't know uh six nine with the flat top and jacked (laughs) like it it is the same thing that it, it it's a lesson i've had to learn over and over in a lot of ways like it's i had him ranked pretty high i had franz ranked decently high but i like again taking the ranking aside i still think i did not i did not give them enough credit for what that extra little bit of size and strength can do when you're genuinely good at defense and you're genuinely good at shooting um it makes everything a little bit easier around the rim basic passes that you need to do as a connector the little things like that that add up especially in the playoffs so uh that stuff is worth its weight in gold um all right we're almost at the marathon two hour mark here so before i take us home are there any other players y'all wanted to get into in particular i I do just just one i mean i could probably there's a few others but the one i want i we've mentioned him a little bit but i want to hear y'all's uh Rui opinions, and I want to get the chance to defend my my precious son Rui. So I'm gonna kick it to Sean because mine's is super basic, and I was just like, okay, <laughs> Wizards, I hope he's good. Okay, yeah, Sean, go ahead, man. 
I got made fun of so much with the other <laughs> scouts, um, <laughs> the Sixers at the time, because I, I I came in just like firing so hot because I, I hated him <laughs> from from kind of the beginning. I had Gonzaga honestly like as a prospect, I thought he was kind of a fake prospect. His oh my god, like one of the worst feels that I've seen. One wow. of the worst defensive feels that I've seen. Just got himself into like weird things, like weird situations that I've never seen other players get into. Just late committing to like trying to jump a steal or like a, a help rotation that was like a half help, half whatever. Just like get, got himself in weird situations where people were like driving behind him and he was turned the other way. Just like genuinely weird stuff. And I thought, okay, so this guy's like decent from the mid range. And there were so many times like I got to see him in person at BYU. I was living in Utah at the time. Well, the first half of that year, I was living in Utah and then I moved to Philly kind of halfway through the season. And I got to see him play BYU <laughs> and um, gosh, what's his name? Um, Killian Tilly was the, was the other big that year. And he came back and he was like kind of hurt, but he's like a super cerebral, like really good shooter um, and a good passer. And I remember so many offensive plays. He would just look at Rui like, what are you doing? Like that was the like, Why didn't you see that passing lane? Or like, you just jacked up the play. Like, he ruined so many offensive sets and he would just be staring at staring at Mark Few all the time, just like shrugging. And Mark Few was like, whatever, like he's driving us. You know, that year they won a lot, obviously. He was driving a lot of success because he was actually pretty efficient from mid-range. But like, I just thought, look, all of this package, I'll bet against this nine times out of like every time. And I'll and I'll be right, you know, sixty percent of the time. But like I'll take that when it comes to draft stuff. I don't know. His package was just bad. He's probably outperformed my expectations. But I'm still not in love with them, to be honest. Are you sure? You, you speak so effusively. Are you sure you're not in love? <laughs> I detect a little bit of love. No. Um, look, Prez, you talked about... His Prez. length is great. I love his length. I'll just say that. On-ball <laughs> well, defense was like a little bit better than I thought. It's, uh, yeah, his length is great. There you go. And so the, I'm glad you mentioned his length. Because though you might mean that somewhat, uh, you know, dismissively, I really legitimately did love his length. And Prez, when you talk about Prez bait at the time, you know, dark bait, Chuck bait was if you had great, if you had great wing dimensions and there was some hook to explain a, a lack of feel or developing feel such as, you know, five years ago, I lived in Japan and didn't speak English. Then I was going to dream on you immediately. I'd be like, well, look, how efficient of a player he already is. He's gotten good instruction at Gonzaga. This is a guy who's improving year over year. You know, this was still only several years removed from, you know, Giannis really popping. And I didn't, I, obviously it's a much different situation, but I, his efficiency really stuck out. And though I think he got um, knocked a little bit because just because Clark happened to be more efficient than him, but Clark was the second most efficient player in the country. And so if Rui was one of the five most efficient players in the country and he had wing size uh, and he had strength, then I thought that he was a pretty good lotto bet. And I still frankly believe that. I think it's fair to wonder how he would fare in the playoffs um, defensively. But being 6'9 with a 7'2 wingspan, nowadays that means that you can be a small ball five if you can, if you can handle it. And I, I wouldn't take that off the table for him. And I still think that he could potentially be a valuable guy. So I, I stand Rui Hachimura. 
He is he is welcome in the dark club anytime he wants. There you go. I mean, he's I I I get to see him a lot being in DC, and he definitely still has some of those head scratchers. But like, yeah, I he's I'm excited for him to be healthy with this team because they have so much wing depth. Yeah, weirdly, because that means although it's harder for him to earn minutes, like it, it allows the Wizards to get kind of funky with the combinations they throw out there in terms mm-hmm. of having all these different big wings who do different things and. They're all kind of weird and flawed, like Denny and Rui and Kuz, but they're all also kind of good at stuff. And somehow you put them together, and they're like this defensive wall of tall dudes and stuff like that. <laughs> so it's it's an interesting bunch, and he's definitely playing his part. Like he's fine. last year, he didn't really shoot that well, but this year so far, he's like putting up the kind of mid range numbers that you expected. And the three point shooting hasn't been there yet. But uh, wait, has again, he debuted? I thought he hadn't even debuted yet. Sorry, I didn't mean this year. I mean last year and then the oh, year before. Oh, okay. Um, last year, he was putting up the kind of mid-range numbers finally we expected, um, like in the 40s and stuff, like pretty good. But the three-point shooting isn't there. So, I, I you know, I hope they he can stay healthy. And, uh, you know, like, like you said, he, he's super easy to root for. And, I mean, he's, he moves well and he's 6'9". But, like, yeah, he's got to... It'll be it'll be interesting because he's the coaches he, like Brooks played around with him at the five a little bit, but Wes Unsell seems to be I don't know he gets good buy-in and he seems to be a little more no nonsense than Brooks, so we'll we'll see how oh, it goes. Yeah. For they, him. they also have three traditional fives when Thomas Bryant mm-hmm. comes back that they can play, so he's not going to yeah. get that opportunity there, I doubt. But they're not going to yeah the, what what they got going right now is working, exactly. so they're not going to yeah. play around with that. Um, not with a. Trez playing at an MVP level. There's a hot take for you. Um, <laughs> maybe not an MVP level, but he should make the All Star game. No, there you go. Yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. You, I can't call an MVP. Can't call an MVP. Not yet. No, that was a little too spicy. It's past my bedtime. But um, <laughs> yeah, Sean. Anyone else? Anyone else jump out? Interesting, fun. Um, I can't think of anybody. I mean, I hate to be like the negative guys. So I'm trying to think <laughs> who's a positive guy that I really liked. You could hate on people too. Um, That's interesting. I mean, Thibel. Uh, yeah, I had him. How, I had him that go for eight. y'all? I had him at number eight, and so like I, I was. Everyone was like dumping on the trade that we did on draft night to like trade a couple of the the first round picks at the end to to move up a few slots and get him over. Yeah, for, I remember. Uh, I thought Celtics. that was unfair criticism at the time. Like. The the thought was you you guys played your hand and so the Celtics swiped what would become like Carson Edwards. I was just like it's you know it's a second rounder, like yeah, I, uh, relax. Yeah, let's <laughs> just pump the brakes. Yeah. I mean, like on average, that trade is probably negative value or whatever. But if you have, and I, I know for a fact that like on the team's board, you know he was like a top, he was like a lottery pick higher than that probably. So yeah, you do like, that. That's an easy call. Yeah, it's pretty easy, obviously. Um, and and we'll see. Like he's clearly he's an incredible defender. If he never shoots, though, then like <laughs> it still may not matter. So, you know, he's he's struggling with playing time as is. Um, I, I think Chumo Kiki, he's a guy that I freaking loved. He yeah. was in my top ten too. too. Same. He did like everything. Like he was almost in a way, he was like a higher feel, but like less effective version of of Hunter. Just like a little bit li- more limited physically, but defensively he was a better decision maker. I thought, 
like Hunter was always great on ball, like incredible on ball stuff. Off ball stuff wasn't amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but Okiki was amazing on ball, off ball, like got blocks, was playing the four, but clearly was going to play, you know, like a, like a, a, a big three or, or maybe a four at the NBA level, but like was mm-hmm. great weak side rim protector, got assists, shot well from three, had a little more like off the bounce than you thought, um, some craft and stuff like that injury, his injuries are some of the stuff that makes me the saddest, honestly. Like looking back at this draft, Jonte Porter, I like too. There's a bunch of just injured guys that yeah. kind of stinks. You could probably do that with every draft, but Yeah, I'm looking at my uh my top ten and I had um I had Chuma and Garland right next to each other and Jonte right after that. So I feel you on a spiritual level. I hope all <laughs> three of them I mean, I don't I don't know what Jonte's situation is lately, but I hope he gets healthy for life reasons, for hoop reasons, whatever. Um, and uh, like you said, Chuma's, he's a ton of fun. And that whole magic team is like, it's just a bunch of fun, high motor dudes and he would fit right in. So like, I hope to yeah. see him with those guys for a so while. For them. Him mm-hmm. next to Franz, like I would freaking love that. Hell yeah. Franz, Hell yeah. yeah. The magic are the exact kind of team that I love when they come to DC because they don't have enough star power for tickets to be expensive. So I can like nerd out over like draft prospects who are developing well and have good teammates with chemistry for like 15 bucks. And it's fantastic. (laughs) They're great, man. They're so fun to watch. And yeah, Chuma, I, I think I had Chuma and Tybal both like late lottery. And I think I had them both ahead of Deandre Hunter. I was lower on Hunter because I didn't see him as a, uh, like a real playmaker on either side of the ball. I ju- you just had sort of the archetype, which mm-hmm. I've learned to rate more highly, you know, when he was so sound. But uh, yeah, the Magic have like six connecting players on their <laughs> team. So they really are like, at, they're exactly what an NBA nerd would really want to watch. Um, if only I'll- Anthony could freaking pass the ball. I actually kind of, Chuck, it's funny that you say that because usually like our opinions are aligned. They're one of my least favorite teams to watch. Oh, Anthony Longball, no. that whole shtick <laughs> is like getting super old for me real quick. He can't pass in the way that a traditional pick and roll operator can. I agree with that, but the, Mosley uses what's like, the way that he can pass. What's the, well, Sean? <laughs> maybe this isn't two hours in. Maybe we shouldn't open. No, this is the right. No, time. No, 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 this is the right time. You got to get the butter with the popcorn, man. Let's do it. No, I'm just saying he can. Like Mosley does a good job of making sure the offense doesn't always run with like Cole pick and roll at the top of the key. They'll he will use Cole as a screener and relocate him to the wing and you know, get him so that he put him in situations where he only has to make the read in front of him. And with that, he's fine hitting a cutter or, you know, slinging sort of a cross court pass where he's traveling across the lane and there's a guy open on the wing. He can like do a push one hand pass to that guy. You just can't run. He can't be the conductor, but he can be a piece that, that is sort of my thought on him, but Anyway, that's sort of. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. I don't hate him necessarily as a player, but I just. I, I don't think it's aesthetically pleasing to watch their offense. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. Agree to disagree. Agree <laughs> Your to disagree. mileage may vary yeah. to any Orlando Magic fans <laughs> listening. All one of you, presumably. <laughs> um, all right. Well, 
Thank you both for joining for this uh, extended bonus director's cut edition of Draft Strickland. Uh, do y'all want to, can you tell the folks where they can find y'all on the internets? Sure. I'm at Chucking Darts. Uh, my podcast is the Chucking Darts NBA podcast. It's found wherever you find your podcasts. And usually uh, Prez is nice enough or Sean is nice enough to retweet my episodes. So if you follow either one of them, you probably will find me. So thank y'all very much. Yeah, like like you said, I'm at Ota Odin. And yeah, if you just follow me there, then you'll get all the pod episodes and stuff. Awesome. Uh, I don't know. I'm still debating whether I want to do two episodes or if I want to just say fuck it and be like, no, you don't get these two guys on the pod <laughs> and half-ass this shit. Here's two hours. Cut it off whenever you want if you're a coward and then just leave it up to the listeners. In fact, I think I like that more. I'll probably do that. So yeah, um, yeah, we didn't even talk about the bigs, man. Jackson Hayes, Goga, Nick Claxton. This was a fun year. This wow. was. This is was. I, maybe we'll have to like revisit this at like I don't know at some point because this <laughs> two is... 2019 redraft bots. <laughs> I the love con- it. The, the content this, that this nobody asked for, yeah, exactly. <laughs> except except for the three of us, <laughs> just replaying this on our you know commutes or whatever. Um. All right. Cool. Well. Thank you all again for joining. Um, really appreciate you taking so much time to nerd out. And uh, yeah, listeners, you you heard where they're at on Twitter and on social. Check out their pods. Um, really great stuff. If you really like the in-depth deep dives, I really can't stress. like These are some of the best podcasts out there for draft deep dives. So they've both been immensely uh informative to me especially uh sean your stuff through the years me uh being you know more armchair and then just nerding out more and more progressively each year for five years until doing until it's 2021 and a pandemic and i'm doing two-hour pods so here we are um cool thank you everyone for listening to jeff strickland um we will catch you in two weeks with the 2020 episode so stay tuned for that thank you press You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.